Good morning. Please turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 133. We'll once again consider one of the Psalms of Ascents. These Psalms were meant to serve God's people as they journeyed up to Zion for worship. If you remember last time, we looked at Psalm 132, which gave us the theological grounds for corporate worship. We gather every Sunday, trusting in God's faithful King and His trustworthy Word. And when we gather in this way, the gospel produces a unity in our congregation that is beautiful and pleasing to God. This is what we'll hear as we turn our attention to Psalm 133. So listen carefully now to God's word. Psalm 133, verse 1. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and the promise of your presence here among your people. Lord, we ask that you would speak to this holy assembly as we gather in Jesus' name. We pray that your spirit would illuminate your word and reveal, reveal the glory of your son. Bind us together around the preaching of the gospel from Psalm 133. Guard our unity, increase our brotherly affection, and transform us into the image of Christ. We ask that your word would regenerate those who remain in darkness and bring them into the fellowship of your Son. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. On the morning of October 7th, the Palestinian terrorist group known as Hamas infiltrated southern Israel and massacred over 1,200 civilians. Now this evoked Israel to respond with the largest bombardment of the Gaza Strip, leaving over 10,000 Palestinians dead to date. Now if you've watched the news, you know that the devastation is hard to stomach. Pictures of mutilated bodies, burned homes, cribs full of blood in southern Israel, pictures of overcrowded hospitals, Mobs, moms carrying dead babies, and men wailing at the news that they lost their entire household from bombings in Gaza. The sights and sounds of this conflict leave behind an aroma of division, destruction, chaos, and death. It leaves you asking the question, how can Palestinians and Israelis dwell together in peace? What will it take to bring peace among these two people? To some in our region, the answer must be tolerance. UAE tolerance. If only Palestine and Israel could learn to tolerate their differences, they would get along. Now, over the past several years, the United Arab Emirates has promoted itself 
as a model of tolerance and unity for others to follow. This was on full display back in 2019, that year of tolerance, when the UAE invited Pope Francis for his first ever visit to the Arabian Peninsula. Listen to how they recount his visit. On February 4, 2019, Pope Francis and the Grand Imam of Al-Huzar, Ahmed Al-Tayyib, captured the attention of the world when they met in Abu Dhabi to sign the document of human fraternity. Born out of the fraternal or brotherly friendship between the two great religious figures, the document provides a blueprint for a culture of dialogue and collaboration between faiths. The declaration intends to serve as a guide for future generations to advance a culture of mutual respect in recognition that we all are members of one human family. Christians, Muslims, and Jews are all one human family, they say. We just need to learn to get along, to tolerate one another, to mutually respect one another. Now, friends, this might sound good, but it is a lie from the pit of hell. This family called humanity is united in our rebellion against God. It is sin that separates us from God and destroys all relationships. Friends, tolerance has no power to change the malice raging in a Palestinian's heart, an Israeli's heart, or in your heart. True unity is only found in what God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what, David, this is what King David tells us. In Psalm 133, he explains that this true unity that comes from God is beautiful, sweet, and life-giving. These are the three points for our sermon this morning. Gospel unity is beautiful, sweet, and life-giving. Let's think about that first point. Gospel unity is beautiful. David begins by declaring that unity is beautiful, it's good and pleasing. Look at verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This word behold is the psalmist's way of drawing our attention. Surely David knew that Israel was familiar with God's word. They had heard God's decrees every week at home and in the synagogues. Yet as Israel gathers at Mount Sinai, David shouts, Behold, listen up. Don't miss what I'm about to say. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. David here wants us to stop and ponder this truth. He invites us to think about how good and how beautiful it really is. Members of Grace Church, I know that you hear the truth over and over again. And sometimes we say that as if it's a bad thing. You hear the truth every Sunday. But don't be lulled asleep just because you've heard it before. Part of spiritual maturity is not just learning the truth, but treasuring it in your heart. This takes time to think deeply on God's word. If this is hard for you, Maybe spend some time slowly meditating on Psalm 119. Think about passages like verse 14 and 15. Psalm 119, verse 14 and 15. 
in the way of your, tr- your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Children and youth, many of you hear the gospel every week. But do you stop and think about what God is saying to you? Do you think about how these truths might apply to you in your life? If you're not sure or need help, I'm sure that your parents would love to help you meditate on God's word. So here David is inviting us to meditate on verse 1. So let's think about what's so good about unity. What's so good about unity? Look again at verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, when we hear the word brother, we naturally think about our family, don't we? And this is right. God created us to live and to relate to the world as family units. We are bound to our family members by the common blood in our veins. We have, a com- we have common traits, common experiences, common interests and personalities with our family mem- members. There are few relationships in life that are deeper and more significant. And David says that it is good when brothers dwell in unity. Now, when David is speaking of dwelling, he's talking about being together. He's not talking about Zoom conversations or WhatsApp messages. God has made us to enjoy one another face to face. Now, as expats, we should know this well. Many of us have not seen our parents or siblings in many years. And though we are thankful for technology, nothing can replace the joy of getting off that airplane and giving your loved one a hug. We were meant to dwell together face to face. But what happens when things are not so good between you and your brother? If you have ongoing conflict with a brother or sister, things can be very unpleasant. They can be difficult when you visit home. What makes these relationships good, David says, is when brothers dwell together in unity. In unity. This word unity refers to a togetherness or oneness. Unlike the world's definition of tolerance, biblical unity describes a full and mutual agreement. Biblical unity describes a full and mutual agreement with one another. This is to have one heart and one mind. This is what David experienced with Jonathan. And we get that that account in 1 Samuel 18, verse 1 to 3. So listen to the account of David and his unity with Jonathan. It says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. This is what David is talking about. The beauty, the goodness, how pleasant it is when brothers are united as one mind and one heart and one spirit. This is a bond between brothers that is beautiful to behold and to experience. 
And these, be- these relationships are beautiful. They're good because they reflect God's design as creator. This is how God intended it. This is how he created us to relate with one another. God, in the beginning, made us to dwell together with one another in perfect unity in God's presence. We know this because of David's word choice of good and dwell. Good and dwell. So think back. When's the first time you hear the word good used in the Bible? It's in the book of Genesis. It's in the book of Genesis. So turn with me to Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Here in Genesis 1, we get an account of God creating the world. He speaks, and out of nothing, all things that are made come from God's word. And as God speaks the world into existence, we hear this repeated phrase over and over again, and it was good. Same word. It was good. And he concludes this, if you look at Genesis 1, verse 31. Genesis 1, verse 31. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. So David, in our passage, is thinking about God's good design in creation. But more specifically, David is thinking about God's good design for mankind for mankind, for Adam and Eve. So keep reading. Look down at Genesis 2, verse 15. Genesis 2, 15. Here we get an account of God creating the garden and Adam and Eve. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That's dwelling language. That's to dwell in God's place. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good, same word, it is not good that the man should be alone or dwell alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God takes a rib from Adam And he made woman, Eve. After God makes Eve, he then presents her to Adam at the first wedding ceremony. And listen to how Moses concludes this in Genesis 2.24. What's the conclusion? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one united flesh. There it is. God created Adam and Eve to dwell together as one united flesh in his good creation. Have you ever thought what this must have been like? There was no sin, no frustration, no arguments, no angry outbursts, no cold shoulders, no conflicts. Adam loved and cherished his wife, and Eve perfectly respected her husband. 
There was perfect love and perfect fellowship together as they chose God's way over their own. Beloved, when we dwell in unity together, we are acting according to God's original design. He created us in his image. This is what it means to be truly human. All division, all strife, all hate and discord is hideous and beast-like. Sin turns us into me monsters and destroy the fellowship that God intended us to enjoy. But when we agree with one another according to God's ways, according to God's design, we reflect God's glory and beauty. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Oh, but there's more. You see, God did not create the, gar the Garden of Eden just so that Adam and Eve could have unity together. He made the garden so that they could enjoy unity together, that's fellowship, with one another as they enjoy God. Fellowship with one another in the presence of God. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. Their unity with one another was grounded in their unity with God. To have unity with God, that's to have one mind with God, means that you humbly agree and submit to God's sovereign rule. To have unity with God, to have one mind with God, means that you humbly agree with God's ways and you submit to God's sovereign rule. Practically, this means that you obey his word. We saw that in that command, didn't we? He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Obedience is an act of fellowship with God, while disobedience is to rebel against him, is to disassociate yourself with God, your maker. But when you submit to God's lordship, you get to enjoy fellowship with him and fellowship with everyone who submits to his rule. Friends, when you have right fellowship with God, you actually know something of God himself. This is because God's design of unity comes from his own character. It comes from his own nature. The scriptures teach that God is perfectly one. He is united within himself. We serve one God who is three persons without any division or sin. Our triune God, our one God who is three persons, enjoys perfect holiness, love, and communion within himself for all of eternity. An amazing truth here is that God made us, God made man to be partakers of his eternal love and fellowship. He did not create us as little gods, but he made us in his image so that we might enjoy the beauty and majesty and glory of his unity within himself. This is God's original design for all mankind. Brothers and sisters, we know that after the fall, our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another is broken. 
Now we do not enjoy this type of oneness by simply being human. Just look around the world. Wars in Palestine, wars in Ukraine, division in Parliament, broken in our homes, and bitterness in our hearts. This unity is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what makes the unity of the church so beautiful. Friends, the moment you believe in the gospel, you are united to Christ and united to his body, the church. In Christ, we now have the full agreement with God and full agreement with one another. We are bound together in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. If you are a Christian, you are no longer primarily a Filipino or an Nigerian or a Pakistani or Indian or American. You are a son or daughter of the living God. You have been adopted into God's family as a brother or sister in Christ. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we must put off our cultural thinking, put off what the world tells us about true unity or what it means to love one another or what it means to be a family. We don't find that from the world, but we find it here in God's word. This means we put off our cultural thinking and treat one another with Christ-like love. This means that you treat the members of this body as brothers and sisters in all purity. As members of this family, you love one another with brotherly affection. You do not use others to gratify your desires, but you humbly serve one another. You do not fear man in hope of gaining their approval, but you outdo one another in showing honor. You do not surround yourself with those who share the same culture as you, but you seek to show hospitality. You do not hoard your resources, but you give to those who are in need. As one family, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep, and we live in harmony with one another. Beloved, do you enjoy this type of relationship with other brothers and sisters in this body? In order to love this family, you must be known and know others. You must pursue one another in love. And this takes time and effort. I want to encourage you after the service, go talk with a member who you don't know very well and simply ask, how can I pray for you, brother? How are you doing spiritually, sister? Ask them and actually do it. Pray for them. In this way, we get to know one another, not just about what we like or How's your favorite sports team? But what is truly meaningful? How we're doing in our relationship with God and with one another. And when we love one another in this way, we display the glory of God's holy character and his design. It is good and beautiful. It is good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. So gospel unity is beautiful. But second, we see that gospel unity is sweet. Point number two, gospel unity is sweet. So in verse one, David declares that the beauty, declares the beauty of gospel unity. 
He then gives two illustrations that further explain what makes it so glorious. One of the ways that unity is beautiful is in the way it smells, in its aroma. It is like the sweet fragrance that comes from precious oil. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Psalm 133, verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. In David's day, oil was a precious commodity. This oil would typically come from hand-picked olives and were pressed, and it was normally mixed with rare spices to create a costly perfume. And this is what David has in mind. This oil that is like a costly or precious perfume. Now he calls it the, the precious or good, same word. He calls it the good oil running down the head and beard of Aaron. Now this reference to Aaron and this oil takes us back to when God anointed Aaron as high priest. David is referring to a holy anointing oil that was used to anoint Aaron as high priest. Now, if you recall, God called Aaron and his household to serve as the first high priest after the Exodus. At this point in Israel's history, Adam and Eve had long been expelled from the Garden of Eden. But in his mercy, God made a way for a sinful people to once again dwell with him through an elaborate design of sacrifice and atonement. Now, before our rigorous ceremony involving various sacrifices, God anointed Aaron with this precious holy oil. We learn more about this oil in Exodus 30. If you want to turn to Exodus 30, verse 22 to 33. Exodus 30, verse 22 to 33. Here the Lord gives Moses instructions how to use this oil. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is, 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its, and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them will become holy. And here it is, how the oil was used to Aaron, the high priest. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. 
Whoever compounds any like it, whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. So here we give we get specific instructions about this oil. Notice that this oil was first made from costly spices and would have a distinct sweet aroma. But also notice that there was nothing like it in the world. This anointing oil was not for general consumption, lest you die. It was only for the priests and the utensils, the things that priests used to make sacrifice for atonement. This was all about worship. This was all about worship. Through God's decree, this oil set apart Aaron as holy unto the Lord. The, holy, the, the anointing oil here represents God's provision of a mediator who could stand between God and man as he offers atonement through sacrifice. That's the point. The oil represents God's provision of a high priest, of a mediator who could offer atonement through sacrifice. So David is not just talking about the oil itself, but what it represents, what this sweet fragrance would represent to God's people. Look again at verse 2, Psalm 133, back in our text, verse 2. He says, this oil, or the uh, gospel unity, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. As the oil ran down Aaron's head, and onto his beard, and onto his clothes... Aaron would be soaked in this perfume. He'd be soaked, drenched in it. Just think about the strong smell when someone who's put a little too much perfume walks by. It's only a few sprays, right? We know that perfume has a strong scent. Just a few sprays of it can give this strong aroma. But here, Aaron was drenched in this holy oil. He was drenched from head to toe. You could smell them from a kilometer away. And every time Israel would smell that sweet aroma, it would serve as a reminder of God's provision. Every time Israel would smell him, smell the priest, that distinct aroma, say, God has provided a mediator. God has provided a mediator to atone for our sins. Friends, smell has a powerful way of bringing things to mind. We know this to be true. For instance, think about your favorite dish growing up. I know for me, every time I smell turkey, gravy, and mashed potatoes, I instantly transported to the memories of Thanksgiving with my family. It just happens to be Thanksgiving this next week. Smell has a powerful way of bringing things to mind. When you go back home, it's been a long time, and you smell your, your old home, Instantly memories that you haven't thought about for a long time come to your mind. Now, the spirit of Dubai perfumes thinks that this is the case, that smell has a powerful way of bringing things to mind. They've made one of the most expensive perfumes in the world, valued at 4.7 million dirhams. Listen to how they describe it. It is comprised of the finest natural ingredients, sourced from the furthest corners of the globe, culminating in a scent 
that is as unforgettable as it is mesmerizing, with notes of amber, sandalwood, musk, rare pure Indian agarwood, pure Turkish rose and frankincense. They assert that the smell is unforgettable and mesmerizing. I don't know if that's true, but if that's true for this oil, how much more would that sweet aroma of God's anointing oil leave an impression on the hearts and minds of Israel? Every time they would smell that sweet aroma, they'd be instantly transported to God's congregation and sacrifice. Now, there are at least two things that would come to mind to Israel when they smell the sweet aroma. There's at least two things. First, this aroma of the high priest would remind Israel of their sin. It would remind Israel of their sin. The presence of the high priest would be a stark reminder of their spiritual need before the Lord. We know that the wages of sin is death. And as the people smell the sweet aroma of the high priest, they would be reminded of all the ways that they've broken God's law and deserve his judgment. In fact, this was the main reason Israel would ascend to Jerusalem. They were gathering at Mount Zion at the temple to receive God's atonement for sin. Friends, sin is the root cause of every conflict. Sin is the root cause of every conflict. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there was instant enmity with God and with one another. Or think about the example of Cain, who raged and murdered against his brother out of his vengeful heart against God. Friends, your raging heart against a brother or sister comes from a heart that is raging against your Creator. When you say that stinging word out of anger, your heart is not acting much different than a Hamas terrorist. You don't believe me? Think about the words of Jesus. When we have hatred and bitterness in our hearts, we're committing murder. We're committing murder. Every conflict, whether it be the war in Palestine or the war of words in your bedroom, proceeds from your rebellious, malicious heart. There is no discord where there is no sin. Friends, do you know what your conflicts smell like before the Lord? It smells like death. When a husband lashes out in anger towards his wife, or a wife belittles her husband, or two brothers bite and devour each other, it smells like a rotting corpse to God and to your fellow brothers and sisters. Think about that the next time you have a conflict with another member. But second, we know that the sweet aroma of the high priest would remind Israel of God's costly provision. So this sweet aroma would remind Israel of their sin, that they deserve God's righteous wrath, but it would also remind them of the high priest who is God's provision. As Israel smelled the sweet aroma of the priest, they would remember that God has indeed provided a substitute for their sin. God has paid the penalty of the judgment they deserve through the mediation of an anointed priest. Friends, this is the only hope for sinners to have their iniquity pardoned. 
It was only through the blood of a lamb, through the service of the high priest, that God's people can draw near to God's presence and have sweet unity with one another. Friends, the sweetness of unity is costly. It's costly. It is only enjoyed through the shedding of blood, of an atoning sacrifice. Beloved, God has made a way for us to enjoy the sweetness of Christian fellowship at the cost of himself. In Christ, we know his forgiveness, and we enjoy fellowship with one one another as his blood-bought people. The heart of our unity is found at the foot of that blood-stained tree. Gospel unity is a sweet aroma that reminds us, though our sin is great, his mercy is so much more. It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can know sweet fellowship with God and sweet fellowship with one another. Gospel unity is always sweet and costly. And this is true when we trust in Christ's atoning work. But it is also true for a continued fellowship with one another. If you're a Christian, God has anointed you with his spirit and he sets you apart for priestly service. In Christ, we no longer offer sacrifice of bulls and rams, but we offer a sacrifice of obedience and love. By faith in Christ, now, empowered by the Spirit, we must maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's from Ephesians 4.3. And this takes hard, costly work. Hard, costly work. Think about that passage that Ryan read for us earlier. What does it look like to put on the mind of Christ and walk in love? Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Beloved, unity is a sweet aroma, like that precious oil, as we deny ourselves for the sake of others. As we daily take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Gospel unity will cost you your preferences, your desires, and your interests. It will even cost good things. It will cost you your time, your energy, and effort. Friends, it is painful, it is painful to forgive when a brother has wronged you. It is uncomfortable to give up a Saturday morning to disciple another brother or sister. It is costly to lovingly confront a member in sin. But when you put to death your sin, your selfishness, your pride, and you walk In holiness, it is good and pleasing to the Lord. As you deny yourself in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, you strive to maintain the unity of this body. There is no unity where there is no self-denial. There is no 
unity where there is no self-denial. And when we live this way for the glory of God and good, good of others, it is sweet. It is a sweet aroma to God. So gospel unity is beautiful. Gospel unity is sweet. And finally, gospel unity is life-giving. Gospel unity is life-giving. It's like life-giving dew. Look at verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, Mount Hermon is located about 200 kilometers north of Jerusalem, and it's the tallest mountain in Israel, roughly at 3,000 meters. It would be snow-capped during the winter. Uh, for reference, that's similar to the height of Jebel Jace and the distance from Jebel Jace in Ras al-Khaimah to Jebel Ali in Dubai. So just picture that in your mind. So clearly, David is not talking about dew literally running down the mountain of Hermon and falling on the mountains of Mount Zion. This is not possible. Rather, he's using these two mountains as an illustration. It's helpful to know about these two mountains. Zion in Jerusalem in the south was much drier. It was much drier. While Hermon in the north was much cooler. Mount Hermon was actually known for its dew that would form on the ground like rain droplets. This dew was a daily source of nourishment that makes the hills below green and full of life. You can look up pictures. Look at pictures of Mount Hermon, and you'll see greenery all at the bottom of the mountain. This is from that life-giving dew. So for those who dwell on Mount Zion, this kind of dew would be life-giving. It would be refreshing. And David is saying that gospel unity is like that life-giving dew falling down on Mount Zion. Like dew, unity is daily nourishment to the souls of others. Just think about the relationships you have in this body. In places where relationships are hard and frustrating, it can suck the life out of you. This is true when counseling difficult members or when you have the same conflict over and over again. It's exhausting. It's discouraging. It's not life-giving, but destroys what is good. But when your relationships are sweet, it gives life and it refreshes your soul. Just think about the sweet times of fellowship that you've enjoyed with other members in this body. Think about the times of communion we've had on Sunday mornings and around the Lord's table. Think about the times of refreshing unity at our members' meetings. Think about the times we've wept with others when we've lost loved ones and we've rejoiced with others at the gift of life. Think about the instances when we've labored together to watch over one another's soul. Think about the times and the joy when we've seen other brothers turn back from their sin and walk in obedience. Think about the countless times in which we've sat together under God's word and the sweet fellowship around a thousand different meals. Friends, when we are united around the gospel, it is life-giving to our souls. It is life-giving to our souls. Ultimately, unity is life-giving because it's blessed by the Lord. It's blessed by the Lord. Did you notice that at the end of verse 3? It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. 
For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. God has commanded his blessing at Mount Zion. Now, if you think back to Psalm 132, we learn that Mount Zion is symbolic for God's resting place, his dwelling place. And God has promised that salvation will come from God's king here at God's place at Mount Zion. It was symbolic for that end-time salvation that God would bring. It's at Mount Zion where God's people will dwell in perfect unity forever with their God. David here is drawing on old covenant language to point Israel forward to a new and better covenant. It was at Mount Sinai that God commanded his blessing of the old covenant over the assembly of Israel. But here, David speaks of God's word blessing the congregation, not at Mount Sinai, but at Mount Zion. It is on Mount Zion that God commands his blessing of eternal life. You see, David is pointing Israel to a future hope of everlasting life and fellowship. But what is David's confidence that God will bless his people at Mount Zion? What is David's confidence and hope? It's God's trustworthy word. It's God's trustworthy word. God has commanded. God has spoken his word of blessing here at Mount Zion. So he has said it. It will happen. Friends, when Israel gathered at Mount Zion, the anointed king or priest would speak the commands of God and bless God's people, bless the congregation. Every time they gathered year after year for corporate worship, It was the word of God that united Israel together. It is the word of God that gives life to weary souls. It is the word of God's promised forgiveness and eternal life. It is the word that produces fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. It is God's word that is life-giving. Friends, Psalm 133 is pointing forward to a future day on Mount Zion when a better mediator would offer a better sacrifice with better word promises that would bring perfect and eternal fellowship with God and God's people. It's pointing forward to a future day on Mount Zion when a better mediator would offer a better sacrifice with better promises that would bring perfect and eternal fellowship with God and with one another. But we know, we read our Bibles, how the story goes for Israel. Year after year, all of Israel would assemble on Mount Zion. Year after year, the high priest would offer sacrifice for Israel's sin. Year after year, Israel would hear the word of God and receive his blessing of forgiveness and fellowship. Year after year, Israel would go back home rejoicing in the hope of God. Year after year, Sin would destroy their relationship with God and ruin their relationship with one another. In fact, Israel's sin continued to grow until Mount Zion was unrecognizable. Jerusalem was unrecognizable. Unlike the sweet aroma of unity, Jerusalem was divided, conquered, and under occupation because of their sin. The blood of goats and bulls was unable to cleanse their hearts and bring true and lasting peace with God and peace with one another. That was until one day, 
one day God sent His Messiah, His promised anointed one, His only begotten Son. As John recounts in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now while on earth, Jesus proclaimed the good news, the gospel of forgiveness and life to all who will join themselves to him, to all who will follow him. He is the only way back to the Father. He's the only one who can bring true reconciliation with God and man. On the days leading up to his betrayal, a woman came up to Jesus with an alabaster flack of expensive oil, an ointment. And she poured it on his head as Jesus was being prepared for his burial. She poured this oil all over his head and around down his head, down his beard, down and soaked his clothes to prepare Jesus for his death and burial. We learn later on the night of his betrayal Jesus shared one last fellowship meal with his brothers. He took the bread of his body, his body, took the bread of his body and the cup of the new covenant in his blood, which is poured out for many. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, and he came to fulfill the curse of our sin so that we might enjoy the blessing of his life. He is the better high priest who came to offer the sacrifice of himself on that cross. He came to purchase a people, not who were just Jewish or known by their ethnic identity, but to purchase a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, and to bring them into God's one family. He offered himself as that atoning sacrifice and shed his blood, bearing God's wrath on the cross. He was buried, but three days later, God rose him from the dead as the only mediator between God and man. As Ephesians 2, 14 to 16 explains, for Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, a new family, a new humanity in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ at the cross killed our hostility with God, our enmity with God, and our hostility with one another. It is only at the cross that we can know peace and unity forever. It is only the unity of the gospel that we can know this perfect fellowship. Friends, if you're not a Christian, you need to know that your enmity, your division or arguments with others, it's only symptomatic of a deeper problem. You're infected with the disease of sin. And your sin has separated you from God. You are at odds or at war with God Almighty. Just think about that. Who do you think will win that war? 
Or think about if you've done something to offend His Highness Sheikh Sultan bin Muhammad al-Qasimi. You would fear his wrath, wouldn't you? You would do whatever it takes to make things right with him. But who is his highness compared to Almighty God? One day you will stand before your creator face to face. And if you stand on your own merits, you will fall under his wrath forever. But Jesus Christ stands as the perfect and only mediator. He shed his blood. He conquered the grave and he offers peace with God and peace with his people, the church. He offers himself as a free pardon at the cost of himself. So turn from your hardness of heart and trust in Christ's priestly work for the forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation with God. Beloved, our unity is founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has paid the penalty for our sin. He has paid it all, and he's given us new life. He's given us his spirit. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. We are united in Christ as one body, in one faith, in one baptism, with one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And we maintain the unity of this blood-bought unity. We maintain this unity as we deny ourselves and speak the life-giving words of Jesus Christ. Did you know this is the main way that we maintain this unity and build up one another in love? We speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. We speak these life-giving words to one another. We grow in unity as we gather every Sunday to hear Christ speak to us. We grow in unity as we speak the word of Christ to one another. And as we speak the truth in love, we all grow up in every way into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, when it's working properly, makes the body grow up in love. It builds itself up in love. So get busy sharing the gospel with one another in this congregation. Open your Bibles every morning and Read God's word. Meditate on the scriptures. Get alone and get together with a brother or sister and read together God's precepts. It's in the scriptures that we have one mind and one heart and one faith. It is this gospel unity that is good and pleasing to our God. So give yourself to delighting in God's word and speaking the gospel to one another. If you're currently not meeting with another member, let me encourage you to talk to one of your pastors after the service. We would love to direct you in how to meet with one another and help this body grow in be the beautiful, sweet, and life-giving communion we have. Beloved, this is our hope. Every Sunday, as we look forward to that Mount Zion, when our faith will become sight and we will dwell together in the presence of of our God forever. So it's hard and enjoy the fellowship of the saints today as we look forward to that final day when our faith will become sight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unity that you purchased for us in Christ. Help us to daily put on the mind of Christ and to lovingly prefer one another. Guard our unity in Christ. Bless our fellowship 
and glorify the gospel of your Son in and through this congregation. May you do far more than we ask or imagine. For your glory we pray in Christ's name.